So we have a theme tune now. Just want to say a huge thank you to Tom Wanless who did that. Uh, he's an amazing composer for natural history stuff. So if you want to check his stuff out, it's www.tomwanless.com. I'm going to skip the news this week and we're going to get straight into the interview. But before I do that, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who's listened to this, uh, everyone who's sent very kind words about the podcast. I wasn't really sure if this was going to work, uh, whether people would like it or not. So just a massive thank you for, for tuning in. And I just thought I would share a couple of stats um, if people are interested. It's had 437 downloads as of recording over nine podcasts, which I guess in the grand scheme of things isn't huge, but I'm immensely pleased with that. And I just, I'm just happy that people are listening to it and seem to be enjoying it. But I'm always open to feedback um, and suggestions. If there's anyone you'd like me to interview or any topics, then obviously uh, please get in touch uh, via the podcast or comment on wherever this link's put or anything like that. The most popular podcast so far is the interview with Sam Stewart. That's got the most views and, and downloads. But they're all pretty even. It's not like everyone hates one of them. They're all they're all pretty good. And I've been pre-recording lots of content, so we've got some great stuff coming up as well. But I'm really looking forward to today's interview. Stephen is a BAFTA award-winning television producer, having been the original producer for BBC Two's Spring Watch. He's worked with David Attenborough, Bill Oddie and Alan Titmarsh, to name a few and is one of the leading nature writers in Britain, having written over 30 books, dozens of magazine articles, and online pieces. I caught up with Stephen to find out why now is the best time to start writing about nature. Stephen, how, how are you doing? Uh, how are you filling, filling the time at the moment? Well, uh, I'm here in Somerset, which makes me one of the very lucky ones, because obviously we've got a lot of room, we've got a nice big garden, I've got a lovely place I do exercise. So I'm actually fitter than I have been for a long time. Um, <laughs> seeing more birds locally than I have for a long time um, since we moved here. And doing a fair amount of work, because of course writing and teaching, which are the two main things I do, can be done remotely. The bird tours have slumped a bit. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> unless you can convince someone to do one in your garden. Well, it's a thought. It's a thought. I probably could do that. Actually, we've got had a lot of good birds recently. Yeah, what, what have you seen? Well, in my garden just now, we're sitting there watching stock doves displaying, which I love. Uh, one of those great overlooked birds. Um, up to eight buzzards overhead, up to about half a dozen ravens. Um, I had a peregrine the other day, first I've had here since 2008. Oh, and wow. on my little walk around the circuit, where I take the dog or cycle or occasionally both, um, she runs behind me. Uh, I've had wheat here, uh, house martin yesterday, just waiting for all the other warblers to get in. But it's been great. You know, it's lovely. One of my neighbours was, uh, I was walking my dog, she was walking her dog, and she was saying uh, there was a, an owl hooting on her house. And she says, I've never heard this owl before. I was like, well, it's probably been around. You've just not, you know, been drowned out of it. So this tawny was obviously giving a good, a good call the other day. Um, you mentioned about writing, and that's obviously what we're going to talk a little bit about, and how now is a very good time to be writing. So what, what's the process of coming up with, it, with an idea for a nature book? You know, for example, you did a book on wrens, which maybe isn't the first bird people would think to write a whole book about, but like, what, what's the process? Yeah, well, actually, the first book I did in that series was The Robin, which I suppose was the obvious one, and I did it for Christmas, and it did extremely well. Um, it's still you know, paying for some of Mrs Moss's birthday presents and things because it, <laughs> it, 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 uh, royalties which was lovely and more more than that I got lovely reviews of those books 
most books you get reviewed on Amazon are reviewed by people who are serious naturalists or birders, some of whom I know, and I'm, I'm very pleased to get those. What was lovely about The Robin is I got reviews saying things like, I bought this for my mum and she really loved it, which means a lot to me because it means it's reaching what I would call normal people as opposed to people <laughs> like you and me. No, I think um, that's fair. I think that's very fair. <laughs> and I do write my books for a general audience mostly. Um, it does vary, but though, particularly those books. Um, so yeah, that then led to the wren, and that was, you're right, it's not a bird you'd immediately think of, but of course it is Britain's commonest bird. It's a bird that I was intrigued by, and I was delighted when I did write the book, because I learned so much. With a robin, I learned a fair amount, because you do, but I learned, I sort of knew what I didn't know about the robin, or I wasn't quite sure why it did things in a certain way. With the wren, it was like, really? It does what? You know, and they are amazing birds. And I've just done the third one in that series is the swallow. Um, oh, okay. which I delivered a week or so ago, um, which is why I have been quite busy recently. And that will come out in the autumn. Um, and that that was a real delight to, to write because swallows are just such an amazing bird. So, so what's your process with picking? I mean, you say so. The robin's obviously an easy, um, an easy one because obviously people have it, see them at Christmas and whatnot. But what made you pick a, a wren? What made you pick a, a swallow, even to a degree? Well, in in order, the robin was because David Lindo, who you know, had, had come up with Britain's favourite bird. Yes. Um, the robin so and it had won that and i thought that's a good one to do and it fits with christmas then the publisher said oh that's great it's done really well what else would you do and i said i want to do the wren because when i say to people it's britain's commonest bird they say really i've never seen one so i play them the sound and they go oh yeah i've heard that and i say well they're all over the place they might you know i saw two this morning but you have to be focused with robins they come up to you and they sit on this spade and they all that and swallows are of course very visible particularly now they're just back and you know people if you live in the country you see swallows if you live in the city you see swifts and house martins but those birds because they're flying all the time um so the wren was very intriguing and then i wanted to do something different i didn't want to do another garden bird and the swallow was perfect because of course it's got the whole story of well the the joke i've said in the book is you say to people where do swallows go in the winter and they say, well, they go to Africa for the winter. And you go, aha, but they don't, do they? They go to Africa for the spring and summer. It's just, it's not our spring and summer. So <laughs> yeah, I suppose people don't think of that. Yeah, when I went there, of course, it was, it was summer. It was January, it was summer there. And I talked to the people I met and said, do you, do you, you know, is this a sign of spring for you? And they said, oh, yeah, you know, when the barn swallows come, as they call them, because they've got other species. Um, and they're everywhere in Africa. I mean, I saw a roost of three million of them, which was amazing. Wow. But yeah, I mean, how, how I come up with book ideas, I suppose I write about something I think I am interested in. And so I hope that other people would be. It's a great David Attenborough line. When Attenborough was controller of BBC Two, he said, I put on programmes that I thought I might want to watch. <laughs> and I think, you know, that's a really important thing that you, if you're a writer, you have to write about something you care about. And with a bit of luck, you can make other people care about it as well. Well, I I'm think you... my dog is barking and driving me mad. I'm just going to go. Oh, and... That's okay. <laughs> can you stop her barking? Because I'm doing a podcast and it's not working very well. <laughs> the dog has never had so many walks in her life. Uh, yeah, no, my, mine. Uh, my mine. Bur I was doing one of these the other day. And she burst in the room, and started jumping all over me. So yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm used to all. 
Leicester's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so no, um, you know, bird uh, name, you know, ideas come from everywhere. The, the book I wrote most recently that came out last month, um, it's called The Accidental Countryside. And the subtitle gives you a clue. It's called Hidden Havens for Britain's Wildlife. But the point about that book is that that came out of a programme I did about 12, 13 years ago now with Alan Titchmarsh, where we did all the different habitats in Britain. And we did farmland and we did woodland and we did wetlands and the coast. And then we done urban. And then I said, look, there aren't eight habitats. We're doing eight programs, not eight habitats. And I said, there's a habitat I'm really interested in. It's not really a habitat. And I called it at the time Secret Britain. And the definition of it is places that human beings have over time built for ourselves that the wildlife moves into. So it starts with Musa Brock on Shetland, which is an old um, Iron Age structure that the storm petrels nest in. And it moves on through churchyards and stately homes and railways and roadside verges and golf courses and military sites. And basically it's places that the wildlife, you know, finds that basically were not designed for wildlife effectively. Although in the book, about half the places in the book are now designed for wildlife because they tend to be old gravel pits and quarries which as you know are have been have been created now as nature reserves but they weren't created for that purpose. that wasn't the original purpose no no definitely um so we're in a pretty unique situation currently uh, but many people are getting quite creative trying to make the most of their time and but, but i suppose they've got this time so presumably this is a good time to start writing to start maybe pitching stuff I think it's a good time. I mean, the first thing to do, people always say to me, how do you start writing? And it's, there's a famous story that, you know, a novelist is at a dinner party and a woman leans across and goes, oh, I'm writing a novel. And he says, yes, neither am I. Because of course, <laughs> the great block is, how do I write? I can't write. Uh, you know, well, everyone can write. Some people can write better than others. So what you need to do is forget what you were taught at school, that it's got to be perfect and it's got to be grammatically correct and just right. And just sit down and write what you feel in, is important in your life. You know, something you've seen, something you remember as a child, something you're watching. And the step back from that, of course, is actually what we call on the course I teach, the MA I teach at Bath University in Travel and Nature Writing. We call it writing in the field. And there's an old story, which is that a fisherman used to say, fishing ain't about catching if it was about catching it would be called catching <laughs> and i knew that would appeal to you yeah yeah I've because heard that fishing before. is about so much more isn't it than catching the fish yes yeah and nature writing the first thing you have to do is go and experience nature and that is partly of course about watching but it's also about listening particularly at this time of year with a bird song it's about touching things you get trees and bark and things like that it's about smelling scents and and you know plants berries all sorts of things you know you can crush leaves and they smell of something and ultimately it's about feeling it's about thinking and feeling how how do i feel about for example at the moment and this is why it's a very good time now is we're all in this really weird position where we're allowed to go out once a day i cheat and go out twice but once a day and you go out and you're confined to your local area. Now, the advantage of that is you're seeing the same thing every day, except you're not because it keeps changing. So write about that. 
to start with. Don't you know, just keep a nature diary. You don't need to worry about almost at this stage, you should just be taking notes. And those notes can be like jottings or they can be whole sentences or even whole paragraphs and, and pages and pages. But don't worry too much if you're starting writing about shaping it yet. Because our big problem is because at school we're always taught that we're getting things wrong that we edit ourselves. And when we edit ourselves as a writer, we limit what we're doing. So just write, and then you've done this, you know, when you wrote about fish, it's something you're passionate about. And I'm sure when you first did it, when you read it, and the other thing of course is, read it the next day, wait 24 hours, read it, and read it aloud. And you yeah. read it aloud and you think, oh, that's quite good, how did I think of that? Because that's the creative process. And then you reach a bit and you think, this is a bit boring. Well, that's fine because that, that's when you edit it. You can then edit it, but don't edit it as you're writing because if you do that, you're always going to be self-censoring, sure. which is not, not a good thing. Backtracking you on yourself a little bit. You started writing because you, your enthusiasm came before your writing, didn't it? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah I, I, I mean, although I can write, I wouldn't necessarily class myself as a writer, but I, when I, I found, because I never really enjoyed it, but when I was writing about a subject that I liked, I found I was enjoying it and it, I did find that. So yeah, I think that definitely rings true. If you're gonna write about something, make, make sure you're, you're interested and you've got a passion for it. Cause I think it does show in the writing as well. If you're, uh, if you're cranking out, you know, if someone asked me to do a book on uh, the sex lives of, of woodlice or something like that, I, I would perhaps lack the enthusiasm and it would probably show a little bit. It'd be a very niche book, but um, you know, Brett Westwood, of course, would do a beautiful book on the sex. Exactly, life. and I'd be interested to read that. But, but um, yeah, if someone else said, you know, maybe do it on salmon or something else like that, then you could, I could put a little bit more heart into it. Exactly, exactly. So, and I think you can only write about what you know and what you care about and what you love. And if you do that, it'll be interesting to someone. The other, obviously, there are aspects of the technique of writing that do need to be taught. But fundamentally, it's a bit like learning to cook or learning a language or learning a musical instrument. The more you practice, the better you get. And one of the big issues is that people write something, they feel self-conscious about it and they stop. Well, it's not going to be necessarily that brilliant, the first thing you write. Might be. I have students who come on the course who've hardly written anything and the first day they write something and you think, whoa. And it's usually because they see the world in an interesting or unusual or different way. And it's a real joy. I find, you know, it, it's very odd teaching writing because to me, I'm very lucky in that writing is the one thing that comes naturally to me. I have lots of things that I'm really bad at, anything mechanical, anything in three dimensions. Um, and there are things I'm okay at, like I can speak some foreign languages a bit but I can't play a musical instrument or I can't paint to save my life. People say, oh, you can, you can. But no, I can't really, trust me. But I do find writing easy. And therefore, actually, in a sense, it can be quite hard to teach because you have to remember what it's like and you have to put yourself in the mind of someone. But for me, that's been a real joy about teaching writing because I've learned so much from the students and often they write something and you just think, gosh, I'd never in a million years have thought of looking at that very familiar subject in that really interesting and novel and unusual way. So, of course, you, you get around to doing this book. Maybe you've written the book already. You've got an idea. 
But what's the secret to a, a good book title? Because as well as the art or the photo on the cover, you need something that presumably is going to grab the audience. Absolutely. Well, it was funny when I came up with the Robin, I came up with Robin, a biography, which sounded a bit odd, but it seemed to work. Now, whether, whether it worked because of the title or because it had a Robin on the cover, obviously <laughs> they produced the book very beautifully. It was small. It looked like a nice, you know, easy to read book, which it is. Um, the Accidental Countryside came out partly of Richard Baby's book, The Unofficial Countryside, many years ago. Uh, and I did ask his permission, bless him, and he did say yes. Um, and then I wrote a book on bird names, which I have here somewhere. Uh, voila, Mrs. Moreau's Warbler, how birds got their names. And that, that is a very odd one because I met the editor from Faber and we were discussing another book idea. Nothing came of it. We finished the meeting and she said, look, I'd really like to work with you. If you've got any other ideas. And I said, I've always wanted to write a book about bird names and how birds got their names. And she said to me, oh, that's great. What would it be called? And I, for a moment, I thought, oh, it will be, you know, Avocet to Zebra Finch or, you know. Yeah. Whatever. And there's a lot of books like that. And they're perfectly good books, but they are effectively dictionaries. So you yeah. look up, you know, Avocet. And it tells you what they are and that's great and i wanted to write a, a story a narrative a history book and then quick as a flash i said i want to call it mrs moreau's warbler because i think it's the most bizarre and intriguing bird name and i want to use that as the story and the story is of the book starts and finishes with me going on what mrs moss calls a jolly to tanzania with two friends to search for this little book bird mrs moreau's warbler which my Son George said, oh, you've done another book with a robin on the cover, Dad. <laughs> um, it looks like a robin. It's extremely rare, and it's found on one mountain in Tanzania in the world. So we wow. went to see it. Um, and the book, you know, and I used that because I was just fascinated at, you know, the bizarre names that birds have. Well, I suppose immediately you think, well, who was Mrs. Munro? There's that question, is it there, when you see that title, you know? Exactly, exactly. And that's, and I did that, I did a book called Wild Hares and Hummingbirds about my, which was subtitled The Natural History of an English Village. And it's my village in Somerset through a year. And people said to me, hummingbirds. And I went, aha, hummingbird hawk moths. But it made people think, Wild Hares and Hummingbirds, English Village. Immediately you've hooked them. Sometimes yeah. you want a title like the Wren or the Robin, which really literally does what it says on the tin. Yeah. Um, other times, you know, I've, I, I suppose, you know, I've seen books which I've been, I've been spoiled by a not a very good title, a very good books. Uh, I won't mention any of them, but you know, <laughs> you get a book and you think, why would they call it that? Um, and some people might think that about Mrs. Moreau's Warbler, but I like it. And um you know, in the end, you are writing books for an audience, but it's terrible to say, but you're sort of writing it for yourself. <laughs> you've got it in you and it come, you want it out there. Yeah, well, you've got to, you've got to certainly uh, at least like what you're writing and be interested in it. Yeah, absolutely. You've got to be passionate about, you know, you know what it's like. Like when you give your talks, you know, I've seen you give that fantastic talk you gave at New Networks on, on you know, your passion. And, and if you are passionate about something, and this is particularly true about a book. People bought this book who weren't particularly interested in birds. They might have been interested in language or have a vague interest in birds or history. And people have said to me, it's not a book about birds, is it? It's a book about the history of the language. 
and how things like the Norman Conquest change things. And that's actually what it's really about. You know, the birds are a vehicle to do it. Um, some new nature writing, of course, isn't about nature at all. It's about, as someone once said, it's all about me. Or as Mike Gilder famously said to me as a joke, he said, the TV presenters tend to say to you, but that's enough about me, Jack. What do you think of me? <laughs> um, and, and a lot of nature writing has gone down that route. And some of it is very, very good. Some of it sells very well. And a good example would be Helen MacDonald's wonderful book, H is for Hawk. Yeah. She's, of course, about her and her grief and her, her you know, the, the, the loss of her father. And it doesn't pretend to be anything else. So that, that's what it's about. But she had something important to write about. I think the danger is when people write about nature that you should be in it because you're the observer. You should be like a sort of good radio presenter, what I call the trusted guide. You know, I want to know a little bit about you if you write about your passion. But if it's all about the author, it's like the nature's just there as a vehicle. And I think... Yes, I see. I suppose it's, it's getting that balance, isn't it? Yeah, and, and, and you know, a lot of things are categorised as nature writing now that you might argue aren't really their biography, their memoir, their travelogues, and that's fine. You know, it's good that there's a lot of different stuff out there. The bizarre thing is when I was growing up, there were virtually no books of this sort. No one, no one wrote books about our human interaction with nature. They were almost, you know, I mean, there were a few famous ones, of course, Gerald Durrell, my family and other animals, but that was written before I was born. Um, Ring of Bright Water, Gavin Maxwell and the Otters, written the year I was born. So this is a long time ago now, you know. Um, but when I was growing up, they were the sort of books we read. We didn't read. that. Well, there weren't contemporaries writing those books in a way that there are, are literally dozens of them now. It definitely seems to be uh, in vogue, if that's the right word for it. But I mean, I remember reading uh, Butterfly Isles by Patrick Barkham. I don't know if you've read that. I have, and, yeah. um, you know, it was the kind of crutch of him going after all the all the different butterflies. But then it mentioned like uh, days out with his with his father, and I think even at one point it was his it was relationship was a bit rocky because of going after yeah. butterflies. It's not something you expect to to read in this. So, um, but I thought he got the balance right there because you know I I'm not reading that book to find out about everything to do with Patrick, but those little hints uh, yeah. humanise him in a way, and I think that's nice to have that in a book because you can relate to aspects of that so i think i think patrick's books are a very good example of that i think i really like patrick and i really like his writing and he he comes and talks to my students and he's absolutely brilliant because he's so generous with his his he shares that he shares the process of writing he's a very diligent writer he's a proper journalist you know he interviews people and takes shorthand notes and that sort of thing and i think there's you're absolutely spot on there jack he he has just enough of himself in his books and i want that i want that personal side because why is he writing this book? Why is he on this quest to see the butterflies? Because as he put, said, he's a 30-something metropolitan journalist who's lost touch with nature. But as a child, his father was very passionate and took him out to see butterflies. So that becomes part of the book. But it's not a sort of, um, you know, it doesn't veer into being a memoir. There's nothing wrong with being a memoir if you're writing a memoir. Yeah. But I think what's great about Patrick's book is that it's a quest. It's a bloody good quest. You want him to succeed. You don't know if he's going to. And, and, you know, I won't give it away, but it's got a, you know, it's, it's a very satisfying book. And he's also, you know, he's a really fluent writer. You can read Patrick. He's not, 
a woman came up to me once and she gave me the best compliment I've ever had. She said, oh, I really enjoyed your book about your village. It was so easy to read. And then she stopped, terribly flustered and embarrassed and said, oh, oh no, I'm sorry. That's, that's obviously the wrong thing to say to a proper writer. <laughs> I said, no, it's a lovely thing to say. You don't want to be difficult. You don't want to be unreadable. You don't want people to have to look, as they do as a lot of literary fiction and indeed some literary non-fiction, um, you have to reread the sentences because you don't quite understand what they mean. Well, you know, if you have to use a dictionary to read a book, if you don't understand the, what the author's getting at, then you're in trouble. And most great nature writers, Mark Cocker, Patrick Barkham, Helen MacDonald, you know, all these people, they're very readable books. They're not yeah. books that you have to struggle to understand. No, definitely. Um, so we're going to just veer away from, from books for a second and talk a little bit about your career as a television producer. So you've travelled to every continent, you've seen multitudes of wildlife spectacles, but what keeps drawing you back to, to British wildlife? Because if you talk to a lot of people, I mean, I get it as a photographer, have you been to the Serengeti or have you been to the Amazon or whatever? Like, no, no, I just, you know, went into Derby the other day or something like that. So, um, so for yourself, who's been all over the world, what, what draws you back to British wildlife? I mean, it's a very pertinent question, particularly now, isn't it? Um, yes. <laughs> I, I, I love going abroad. And I went to South Africa in January to see the swallows. And I had a wonderful few days afterwards. And it was unforgettable. But if I had to choose, if I honestly had to choose that I could go abroad or be in Somerset, but I only had one choice, it would be in Somerset. <laughs> the rest of Britain, I like. I, I love other places here. I love going to Norfolk. I love going to the Scottish Highlands and the Islands. But in a sense, it's home that matters. It, it's not so much that it's British, it's that it's my patch. And that was true when I lived in London, when I had a couple of little local patches. It's true in Somerset. And I have two or three what I call patches here. But at the moment, it's literally what I'm looking at out of my window. It's the view. Yeah. Um, and it's the fact that it changes and it changes on a daily basis and you see little tiny changes and you wait with anticipation. I'm waiting for the first white throat at the moment and the first sedge and reed warblers. And that to me is what makes wildlife special. It's that personal aspect. And it's the same reason why you can write a book about the robin. And there were two or 300 other species in the robin's family. And some of them are very well known, the nightingale. The wheat here is pretty well known, the Red Star. John Buxton wrote a wonderful book about the Red Star. But you wouldn't write a book about most of them. And the reason is, is that they, it's not that they don't matter, it's that they don't matter to us. You know, it, it's a very jingoistic thing, but British wildlife matters because it's ours. There are lots of other robin-like birds around the world, but there's this one that's become our favourite. Same with the skylark, same with the nightingale. Um, and it's true of you know other creatures, the fox, the pike, you know the 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 red admiral butterfly. You know Matthew Oates has just written a book about the purple emperor. There are lots of other butterflies in the world. There are brighter coloured ones. Why is he not writing about them? It's because the purple emperor matters, and it matters to him, and it matters to us. And I'll want to read that book because even though you think, how can you write a whole book about one butterfly? Well, if anyone can, Matthew can. But it will, you know, it's because there's a connection with it and also what these connections do and the swallow was the best example of this is they take you from here where I you know the other day saw my first swallow over here 
it would normally be the first swallow I'd seen for six months. It was the first I'd seen for three months because I'd seen them in Africa. So I've flown back in 24 hours and they've taken a month and they've got here. Yeah. And that for me, you know, what swallows give you is they give you the best of both worlds. They give you the local, your, my village, my place, my bird. And then I go to South Africa and it's their village and their bird. And I love that. I love the way a bird can do that. I suppose British wildlife by its nature is quite intimate in that you do get to see it, particularly on your local patch or even in your garden. I mean, you know, what have we been now, like three weeks in lockdown or whatever, and I'm starting to get to know every insect frog. <laughs> you know, you know, I haven't quite named them yet, but, you know, you're like, oh, well, I know that lives there and that lives there. And I guess that's something that you're not going to have when you travel and visit a place when you might only have a, a day or a week or whatever there. You're never going to know the wildlife as well as you're going to know them on, on your doorstep. Yeah, it's about context, isn't it? It's yeah. about knowing about a week ago that I was about to see the first orange tip butterfly. But I also remember when I saw that butterfly, I was out for a walk um, the next day with my oldest son, who's 33, and my youngest, who's 15. And I was reminded of two things. One was that George, my youngest son, about 10 years ago, came back from school on March the 21st and said, I've seen one of those white butterflies with the orange on the wings. I said, well, you mean orange tip? He said, yeah. He said, well, you can't have love because it's too early. And of course, it was one because the next day they all came out and he had seen one. <laughs> but also, I also remember the very first time I saw an orange tip, and that was exactly 30 years ago, when my oldest son, who was three years old then and is 33 now, we were in my mother's garden. My mother and grandmother were there. And I saw this butterfly. It's an amazing white butterfly with orange wings. And I didn't know much about butterflies. I was a bird person. Like, what the hell's that? And David said, I'll just go and have a look, Dad. And went into the house, brought out a butterfly book and went, it's that one. <laughs> and that. So when I see an orange tip butterfly, it unravels this sort of series of memories. Transports you back. It transports me back. And that is true of any bird. If I see a bird, if I think hard enough, I can think, I saw a wheat ear the other day on my patch. And I thought, I remember really wanting to see a wheat ear. I thought, that's good. That's a really rare bird. I was 13. I was at Minsmere. And a guy showed me a wheat ear. And I still remember that. Because for me, a wheat ear, you know, was this unattainable, exotic creature. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so what wildlife gives you is this extraordinary context and rootedness in your life and every naturalist watching this will know what i'm talking about because we all have it um, yeah i mean i definitely agree with you so for me mine is when the frogs come back to my pond that's for me spring hasn't started until there's the first clump of spawn and roughly i know each year when it's going to happen because you can kind of go so like, like kind of last week of march typically you get there and you maybe have a day of that kind of really low kind of croaking. And then that's why, okay, spring started now, the year's, the year's going. Changes though, doesn't it? For me, it used to be the Swift because I spent the first 40 years of my life living in London. And so the Swift was the, the big moment of the sort of proper spring, you know, late spring, you'd call it now. Yes, yeah. If you lived in London, you didn't notice anything until the Swifts came. And wow. then I moved to the countryside and suddenly the Swallow not suddenly, it took four years. I've written about it in the book. It took me four years to convert from an urban, suburban <laughs> birder to a rural birder. And now 
people say to me, what's your favourite bird? And I'm having, I feel sort of I'm being unfaithful to swifts. <laughs> say, it's, it's the swallow now. But I remember Bilotti saying to me that was his favourite bird. And I remember thinking, hmm, yeah, they're all right. Quite like swallows, but they don't mean anything to me. If you live in a city, swallows mean nothing. Yeah. Swifts and health martins do, but swallows don't. If you live in the country, it's the other way around. Yeah, it's definitely what what's on your doorstep. You're going to have more more of an attachment to. So, you were you were working on. Uh, we're going to kind of go on to Springwatch a little bit. So you were working on Springwatch from from its inception, from the off. I think 2005. Is that right? That's right. Well, it was a funny program. It started actually in 2003 when we did a week long thing called Wild in Your Garden in Bristol, and that's the sort of proto Springwatch. And then yes, it turned into Springwatch. I was lucky enough to be the first series producer. But it was one of those things that. It was never invented. It didn't, it wasn't created. It sort of evolved. Right. Because that was going to be my question was where, where did this idea, because nothing like that had been done before, really, where you're beaming live images of British wildlife into people's living rooms. Well, funnily enough, it had been done in the 90s. And, 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 and you probably won't remember this. And it wasn't as big as Springwater. There was a thing called Bird in the Nest. Okay. And Bill Oddie, Simon King, and Peter Holden from the RSPB, the lovely man from the YOC. Right. And they did a very similar thing, except even though it was only 10 years before Springwatch, they had to literally cut a hole in the back of a nest box and have a bloke with a camera the size <laughs> of, you know, a proper Really? Wow. Camera, like that they used for sporting events, poked <laughs> in the back of a blue tits box. And 10 years later, when we did Wild in Your Garden, we didn't need that. We could use little security cameras and then they evolved. So the technology certainly helped. There was a, there was a feeling against wanting to do live programmes because live programmes can't be controlled and BBC controllers is the word is used and commissioners, they want to be in charge. Yeah. And you can't be in charge of life and you certainly can't be in charge of a live programme when Bill Oddie's presenting it. <laughs> Bill, as I always say, you know, the only true genius I ever worked with, with no no criticism of any of the others but he really is and bill was so amazingly unpredictable you know he is a jazz musician by inclination and he presents like a jazz musician you know, mm. david Apper's a concert pianist and bill's <laughs> bill's improvising yeah he's a force of nature yeah and that was the joy of working with it and you know and him and, and kate and uh, simon um yeah, it was an amazing experience. I mean, all these experiences. It's funny, you mentioned the fact that I've travelled a lot and I have, and I've seen some great sightings. But in the end, it's the people you work with. And I genuinely mean this, you know, people, not just obviously people like Bill and, and the presenters, but also all the teams I work with are fantastic people on Springwatch on things like Big Cat Diary. Um, because you all care about it so much and you, because you're all focused on doing it right, particularly on a live programme, the camaraderie was incredible and it's one of the the most joyous things actually of my career and I, as a solitary writer i love that but i also loved that sort of being with a group doing something well i suppose people don't maybe don't realize how big the operation is i mean i, mem- I remember bumping into you at minsmere a few years ago uh, on on the spring watch sure. and and it is like a it's like a circus is pro- i don't know if that's the right word to describe it but there's so <laughs> many people there's so many people in trailers and there's tents there full of people and tents there. I mean, um, I don't know how many people, there, probably over 100, you know, crew, yeah. staff, whatever. It, it's it a big operation. 100, 120, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, it was incredible. I mean, and also, you know, in Big Cat Diary, we had 100 people in the Masai Mara in the middle of <laughs> tent in the middle of nowhere, you know. It, and, and running a team like that, you're not really running it. You're, well, you're sort of, it's like herding cats. You know, you're working with some of the most talented people in the world at their job, the greatest camera people, the greatest editors, presenters, you know, wildlife spotters, you know, naturalists, whatever. And your job is basically to keep them all singing from the same hymn sheet um but it's yeah it was uh, you know an utter joy i mean it was of course there were terrible painful stressful moments i've just managed to forget all of those <laughs> big stress wow. this year is how they're going to do spring watch and i can't tell you but they are working on it and i'm sure it will happen yeah no i you know i mean it'd be great to see i've been, I've been watching countryfile recently and they've obviously been kind of all the presenters have been doing it from home and doing little little bobs there so um yeah it's been interesting how these sort of programs work but you know we'll see we'll see how this year's spring watch goes um one last question before we finish up Stephen. so obviously you've seen all these amazing sites all these amazing creatures and places is there one wildlife encounter that really stands out for you Gosh, I think the killer whales in Patagonia, where they came up, grabbed a seal and then dropped it and the seal survived. That was probably the, the, the ultimate one when I was filming. But most recently, going to South Africa for my book and seeing the swallows gather in this roost of well over a million birds coming in and they were like midges. They just, the whole skyline was just filled with them against the sunset. And that take some beating because it was partly that it was such an amazing spectacle but also the idea that these birds that weigh literally half the size of a standard packet of crisps had flown from all over Europe and Asia to this place near Durban and then were going to in a month or two fly back and then I came back and as I say the other day saw them here so but another answer to that question would be the last great thing I saw you know the last moment the house Martin I saw yesterday the yeah, I have to admit, I, I always struggle with that question when people say, you know, what's the best thing you've seen? And like, oh, there, you know, there's, it's, it tends to be either the most recent thing or, or a collection. It's a difficult question to, to answer, so I'll probably put you on the spot there a little bit. Um, look, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Stephen. And uh, yeah, I'll catch you again at some point, I'm sure. Yeah, no, that's great, Jack. Thank you so much for doing this, because this is what I think is bringing people together now on you know i'm going mad on twitter now social media people are doing these podcasts chris um packham and, and his stepdaughter megan of course are doing this as well every day it's just brilliant that people are making an effort to do these things because it is a really difficult time we have a very close friend who is i hope possibly now out of the woods but it's been very touch and go in hospital in London yeah. and it is a terrible time and people are suffering, but we have to remember that nature is just carrying on and it's great that you're celebrating it. So it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Cool. All right. Take care, Stephen. Yeah. And you mate. So that was Stephen Moss. He's an absolute wealth of knowledge and fascinating to talk to him. So that brings us on to nature reserve of the week. And I think in honor of Stephen, we're going to be covering Ham Wall, which is a reserve in Somerset. Unfortunately, I've never actually been to Ham Wall, but I am hoping to get there at some point. It's a huge wetland of 640 acres located in Somerset. It was exploited for its large deposits of peat before being passed on to Natural England, who in turn gave it to the RSPB, who currently manage it. 
it's a fantastic reserve for heron species with six species breeding on site, which is incredible for the UK, largely due to habitat available, but also large number of Perez frogs that are found on the reserve and they feed all of these birds. The other thing the nature reserve is very well known for is its starling murmurations in the winter and the Avalon marshes in general being one of the best places to see it. Hour or so before sunset is when you're most likely to capture this fantastic nature spectacle. It's not just birds though, there are rare inverts also like the shining ram's horn snail and the depressed river mussel, which I assume is its shape, not its mental well-being. It's got a large tower hide and blue badge parking in the centre of the reserve, which is lovely, so that means if you can't walk very well, you can still get to the centre and see most of the reserve. A very large car park with five viewing screens and a pond dipping platform for education and getting the kids out and enjoying nature. Now, there's no shop on site or calf, however, you can get basic refreshments like a cup of tea, water, uh, light snacks and things like that. Sounds fantastic to me. I, I personally would love to see the Perez frogs and the herons. They're some of my favourite species to look at and it's a great reserve. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and I will catch you next time. Cheers.